0: Welcome back to the next installment of My Father Before Me. I'm your host, Brennan Sim. Joining me, as usual, is my father. How are you doing, Dad? Doing good. All right.
1: What are we talking about this week? Well, uh, let me just uh, give you the taglines first. A couple of taglines. All the dreams you've ever had and not just the good ones. (laughs) So you might think Nightmare on Elm Street from that one, but no, that's not it. Uh, And then uh, the other one was, they didn't make history, they stole it. (laughs) <laughs> so today we're going to talk about uh, Time Bandits, uh, a Terry Gilliam movie made in, and I just had it up. what is it, 80? 80, 81, it looks like. 81, yeah. You know, it's, a, it's another cult classic. We talked about that a little bit last week with Labyrinth, how Labyrinth wasn't a big hit, but then it became a cult classic. Um, Time Bandits <laughs> is another one of those, where it just... Uh, it's one of those that I remember as a child watching it. I didn't understand it all. I just thought it was a cool or an, or a fun visual thing. Sure. Uh, but it definitely is one that I remember as a child. So yeah. what do
0: you think? I, uh, I thought it was uh, fun. It was interesting. <laughs> I'm not going to say that I really liked it. Uh, it didn't quite grab me it was just a little bit weird um but i certainly did enjoy watching it it was obviously very funny uh, a nice family friendly film
1: <laughs> sure it is sure it is uh, we got uh, parents exploding at the end but we'll get to that we got uh, uh you know a kid wanting to uh stay in the past with another king who's just taking him over uh you know all kinds of weird stuff there but it is you know you say family friendly but it really is a a story um it's supposed to be a story about, uh, another story about growing up, you know, a child having to deal with, uh, inattentive parents, you know, you start, you see right from the beginning, his parents are only concerned about what the neighbors have for, uh, you know, their fancy appliances and stuff. And that seems to be all they're concerned with. And it's a, it's a child trying to get away from that, I think is what we're supposed to believe. So.
0: Yeah, that makes certain sense, especially with, yeah, when you put it that way, the the parents, uh, the whole society, uh, you know, shown through that lovely TV show, uh, is just consumed with like this sort of nihilistic consumerism and him trying to, or him being so fascinated with the past is his way of, you could could be argued, is his way of going back to a simpler time.
1: (laughs) That's right. And, you know, it was a thing. Terry Gilliam was against the uh, the commercialism of everything and stuff, so he's that's his commentary. This is his commentary on it, in the same way that uh, you know RoboCop is a is a commentary on commercialism. Uh, we'll watch that one sometime too. Uh, but uh, you know, it's just at that time in the '80s and stuff, you definitely had that feeling where things were getting too commercial, too too. Uh, Uh, controlled by the corporations and the finances and the money of it all and that sort of thing. And I I think you see that in a lot of these shows that we're reviewing.
0: Yes. And I'm sure Terry Gilliam would be uh, happy with the way, (laughs) the way that society has progressed since the (laughs) eighties.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I am kind of curious. Maybe we should, uh, he's got a bunch of books out, I know, but uh, we'll have to take a look at it. But yeah, we did mention Terry Gilliam, of course, from Monty Python. Um, He's come out and said, the reason he made this movie is because he needed money. So he, uh, he wrote a movie uh, just to try to get some money for his other projects that he wanted to work on. And I think those other projects included um, Brazil. And if you take this movie here, it's part of an unofficial trilogy. So Time Bandits, Brazil, and then The Adventures of Baron Munchausen are supposed to be the, a trilogy of the different um, life areas of or life segments of a, of a young man. Right. So we've got time bandits is a story about youth and growing up and inattentive parents. Uh, Brazil is a story about being a middle-aged person trapped in a corporate environment. And then Baron von Munchausen, the adventures of Baron von Munchausen or whatever it is, is, uh, uh, maybe there's no Vaughn in it. Now I got to remember, but there is a, uh, a story about, you know, an elderly man trying to, uh, have his adventures and stuff so so i i do think at some point we need to do a review because i just recently after watching time bandits i had never watched brazil and i don't remember baron von munchausen no baron munchausen uh i don't know where i'm getting the von from it sounds uh, like it
0: there should be a von in there <laughs> there definitely should <laughs> I be see
1: that so I think that at some point we need to do a review. It's not necessarily uh, me introducing you to something I watched as a child. It's us taking this a little bit further. But it is, I am kind of curious about it and, and curious on your take of, well, like I said, I just recently watched Brazil. So curious on your take of that movie as well. But but yeah, that's what he was going for is it's Terry Gilliam trying to build this this storyline or, or trying to make commentary on different ages of your life. So
0: Yeah. And I could, it's definitely very, um, how do how do I describe this? You could tell that he's very deliberate in the way that, uh, he wanted to portray (laughs) like the certain, the aspects of the consumerism. And then later on, when we get into like the supreme being and the evil genius, you know, the way that he differentiates those two. And, uh, uses them as an analog for like the, the way the society is currently running. Now the other ones, um, Brazil and I guess you you said you haven't seen Baron Munchausen, but Brazil, is that another, is is it like a step further in this sort of his take on consumerism or is it more of like a separate?
1: Well, Brazil and, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it quite a bit more sometime because I think um, um, Brazil is, is Terry Gilliam's take on 1984. You know the Georgia or- Orwell story, uh, and it kind of is um, you know that dystopian future where some kind of corporate America or Big Brother is kind of controlling everything, and he's a uh, cog in the wheel and stuff, and and he wants to break free. You know, spoiler alert, that's what these stories are always being, <laughs> right, right? Uh, and of course, it goes lots of uh, fun places, and and you can guess from you know the uh, the set design and all the all the stuff that we see in this movie. How that is a big aspect of Brazil as well, because Terry Gilliam loves to make a—he uh, loves to make a scene. He loves to make the whole—the whole scene be a thing, and then move on to the next scene. Now, I will say that if we compare *Time Bandits* to *Brazil*, in my mind, I can definitely see the Monty Python-esque of this, because you know my Monty Python reference is uh, the Holy Grail. Where it's just a bunch of vignettes of small little scenes and then they go on to the next one, right? Right. And that's what we're getting here with time bandits. I mean, the the transition between the scene is they pull out the map and go through the time hole. You know, in uh, Monty Python, the transition is they flip open that book and have the little com- commentary and stuff. Right. But you know, it it is a it's a Saturday Night Live, it's a skit, it's a it's a bunch of scenes and stuff. I think that Brazil goes away from that in a way. Because it is, it does feel more like a story. You know, there's obviously, with all of these movies, you see the, the background. There's always something going in the background that's supposed to, you know, be some kind of commentary on something. You know, some, some, some sort of social commentary. Um, but he definitely moved away from that vignette thing that I noticed in this one onto the next one. And part of that may also be that his goal was to make this you know, a a family friendly type of thing. I believe I heard that that was the case. So he wanted to make this a, a film that, you know, young people could enjoy. Um, it worked. I enjoyed it. Uh, but, uh, you know, from that standpoint, maybe it's the old mindset, you know, kids don't have the attention span for a long story or don't need a long story. They just need fun things going on, you know? Right. So maybe that's his mindset here, too, as well. So.
0: Right. And I think part of that, too, I think Terry Gilliam started out as like a, a cartoonist or an animator, didn't he? Um, that
1: sounds right. Yeah.
0: So that, that this could be part of that as well. If this is um, his first, this came out before Brazil, the you could probably reason out that part of the reason that it's much more of like a um, less, less of a, a through line and more of like these individual scenes plays off
1: that it does. It definitely does. And, you know, and obviously an animator, that's what they're doing scene to scene and that sort of thing. So I could see where that aspect is coming through as well. So I did, you know, I made a note here. It's kind of fun to to know that he, he shopped this around for a while and was trying to get people to buy it and nobody wanted to buy it. And, and when we talk about Brazil, he has all kinds of troubles with the, um, the studio format there too, as well. But, uh, um, in this instance, he couldn't find any to buy it, anyone to buy it. So finally he got George Harrison in on it. And George Harrison, of course, from the Beatles, was uh, you know trying to throw some money around and get some get some stuff started. Now, he actually had to, I think it said he had to mortgage the uh, office building. Where his uh, production company was in order to make this, because they were <laughs> really? they were running over budget, and I I believe there was some heated things going on on set because of that. Uh, um, I didn't catch a whole lot of it, but I've heard notes of that. You know that he had to uh, really throw some money into it, and then they went over the budget, and he had to throw some more into <laughs> it. So. It's pretty fun, and, and you you noted, uh, you know, last time we talked about this, of course, that's why we get that George Harrison song at the end. You know, you got one little song in there. Yeah. I suppose that was probably part of the deal, but... Uh.
0: Yeah, I think I was reading somewhere that... Um Terry Gilliam wanted the credits to be just the standard, like, you know, background score with no lyrics. But George Harrison was like, hey, this whole movie wouldn't exist without my money, so put my song in.
1: Well, and you can see that, you know, it's when you get let the artist take over because it definitely, uh, it's a different tone that that final credit song than then uh having some kind of a score going over it or something like yeah. that that you're thinking about. But,
0: yeah, the the score makes you think of like a classic fantasy tale. Yeah. <laughs> um now, I would be curious to know how Terry Gilliam and George Harrison like knew each other cuz that's a sort of a weird pairing. Well, you know, they
1: they're all European. All them European famous people know each <laughs> other. I mean, it is kind of fun cuz you you think about uh you know, you see documentaries on the Beatles or, um, you know, Jimi Hendrix and that sort of thing, and it is kind of interesting how they did kind of all know each other. You know, Eric Clapton, all those guys were kind of running through the same circles, and I don't know if that's just because at the time that's what you did. You know, you had your group and you knew the the other people who were good in your group, and you and those were the ones you you dealt with. I I just don't know, but it is interesting that you see that in that circle or any old documentary, when you're talking about the Beatles or anything, they will be bringing in, they'll bring up Jimi Hendrix or they'll bring up Eric Clapton, you know, or that sort of thing. So that there is that, that reference there that everybody's working together and kind of all doing, you know, in, in the same environment and stuff. Right. So I suppose that must be where it came from.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine that part of that, just them all knowing each other and being friendly is just, uh, an aspect of just the fact that there's not that many famous people, right? Because this is obviously pre-internet, yeah. <laughs> you know? So there's like 10 famous people that all get, do the rounds on the, on the press or whatever.
1: I think you're probably right there. There's definitely something to that. Cause those, those old time, you know, and, and you see that even with old, old Hollywood movie stars, you know, they all knew that other person or, you know, they all knew, or I was an extra on this movie for this famous actor. And, you know, they were nice to me, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So it, it, it's pretty interesting how that, how that get around maybe that's the uh maybe we're losing that social aspect of our community (laughs) by by having the internet we're ruining it all yeah nobody will ever know who's famous because they're all famous i guess i don't know uh so yeah speaking of famous people we do get some fun uh um cameos, introductions. Uh For example, nobody thought that we would see Sean Connery in this movie.
0: Yeah, that felt a little out of place. It
1: definitely did, but he popped in and he wanted to be involved, so he got in and, and he was, uh was it Agamemnon, King Ab- Agamemnon or whatever? Yes. Now, I'm not exactly sure about the whole uh destroying the Minotaur. I don't think there were real Minotaurs around at the time, so... I'm not know. sure how historically accurate that is. <laughs> but I do have to say they noted um, that, you know, throughout that scene, his wife is kind of giving him the side eye all the time. And when he announces that the uh, our, our main uh, character is going to be his heir, she kind of gives him a look and stuff. And it is historically accurate in that he was killed by his wife. So, you know, he kind of uh, – you see that um, – That aspect or that historical aspect, they definitely took that into concern into account. So you you got to think that you know this is a you know a story that Terry Gilliam heard or something, and he always wanted to do it, or at least he it's something that he knew. You know, they always say write what you know. So he definitely knew that that's what happened to Agamemnon. So he's just kind of throwing that around. So
0: yeah, it adds a certain level of like. I don't necessarily want to say realness, <laughs> because, you know, obviously the, uh, the Minotaur, but it adds that level of gravity that it has these, it takes these aspects in, of actual history or actual mythological tales and applies them to these characters. right it's not just a, a a random assortment of of uh history that they just pick and choose it's like part of it is actual history
1: right and maybe this is our historical show in the same way that doctor who was a, sh- a science show you know or something right like that, that sort of thing but uh yeah it uh it is kind of fun when they do that and of course they try to they, they start out with and and i i made a list of the places they visit here i mean they started out in Italy during the battle of Castiglione with uh, um, Napoleon Napoleon who uh, was obviously played by Bilbo the yes, Hobbit Ian you know, Holmes, so, what a guy so that was pretty cool and and you know a, a little side note Ian Holmes in uh, um, Brazil too and he's he's got a he's definitely got a different look to him but uh, uh, but yeah it that was pretty fun of course the best part about that is every little comment about size or something is interesting. And of course the ones that uh, he enjoyed the show, he enjoyed the most was the little people dancing in front of him. Right. He likes making fun of them. (laughs) That's right. He's Napoleon. Uh, So you start out there, you go to Sherwin, Sherwood forest to meet Robin hood. um, Which I don't know the historical accuracy of Robin hood. uh, But that was kind of fun. I think it was, uh, I think Terry Gilliam wanted to be Robin hood when he was writing this, the story, but then he brought in John Cleese, and John Cleese took Robin Hood a slightly different way. Terry Gilliam wanted him to be just a a dullard, you know, somebody who didn't, you know, didn't know what was going on or anything. But uh, I think John Cleese's version of him was pretty fun because while he's being so nice and everything, you can see he's just kind of conveniently grabbing everything he can, you know, doing a little, <laughs> yeah. little theft yeah. there. But. Yeah, he's definitely Robin Hood's. Definitely a little bit fake.
0: He's giving these platitudes to the, to the robbers, and then as soon as he leaves, like those, they're horrible people.
1: <laughs> That's right. And then in that, you know, in Sherwood Forest is where we meet, uh, you know, Michael Palin's character, of course, Monty Python. Um, he's great in a fish called Wanda, uh, and um, Shelley Duvall. We get in there, um, yes, and they become the couple that you see a couple times, you know, over the years, where it's a, they're trying to. He's always got something wrong with them, and then they they're always in close to being in love, and then the little dudes fall on them. But uh, <laughs> it is kind of fun. There, there's a little uh, uh, note on the documentaries and stuff that you see where Terry Gilliam was trying to uh, show the actors how to jump into the cart without hitting Shelley Duvall. And when he did it, demonstrated it, he actually landed on Shelley Duvall. So <laughs> poor Shelley Duvall had a long year that year. Cause this is, this was probably about the same time as uh, what, <laughs> Oh boy. Shelley Duvall in uh, the shining. Uh, the shining oh, that's yeah. the words. I'm but yeah. Yeah. Didn't this
0: came out, the year after, so obviously a big, a big yeah. downgrade in the quality of film we've got. Well, who
1: knows? Maybe she decided that instead of a horror, she just wanted to be some more, somewhat more of a, uh, a relaxing family movie, and then she's getting <laughs> smushed and on the Titanic and and all kinds of stuff. So,
0: yeah, it is worth noting that as far as the um, the accuracy accuracies go with uh, Agamemnon and uh, vaguely with Napoleon. Uh, the Robin Hood aspect is still not quite accurate because obviously in the original tale, he stole from the government and gave it back to the people, but then that's sort of been manipulated into just stealing from anybody who has money, <laughs> which is probably also he did do that too. But. Yeah,
1: that, those are the parts we don't talk about. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A couple other cameos um, that you'll notice. Of course, we mentioned Ian Holm. David Warner uh, was the, uh, the ultimate evil guy at the end. He is the bad guy on Tron, of course, and we've seen him in some other things too. But uh, he's the one in the suit uh, that that uh, um, you have to fight at the end. So he he's been around a while, and, and of course he's he's been in. Um, I'm trying to think what else I saw him in, but he was one of those that you saw around that time, right? And he played that guy. He he was that guy. Yeah, you know? for sure. Now Star originally Trek Star Trek Six, okay. Oh, that's right. He was uh, uh, one of the uh, ambassadors or whatever.
0: Chancellor Gorkin? What a name.
1: Oh, I'm thinking of the wrong guy. Okay, yeah. Chancellor. Okay, so he's a Klingon. So then we had, uh, and the other one I wanted to mention was um, Peter Vaughn, which you may not recognize the name. He was the ogre. He is uh, Master Amon. From, from Game, Game, of Game of Thrones, Thrones. Yep. Right. <laughs> uh, so, so he definitely changed there. He, he turned into an old, withered, blind guy. But, uh, um, so I thought that was a fun little, uh, fun little note there. So we talked about David Werner being the uh, the ultimate evil at the end. I think originally that was supposed to go to Jonathan Price, who of course is another Game of Thrones alum. He's the uh, High Sparrow in Game of Thrones. He is the main guy in Brazil. So uh, he was doing something else at the time, so Terry Gilliam couldn't get him, but then, of course, like I said, he got him for Brazil right and i i've 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 heard that the Brazil character was kind of written for him, so it is uh I forgot to mention that uh speaking of writing characters, um they had mentioned that they had actually wrote in the script that when Agamemnon takes off his helmet, it's a uh, Sean Connery looking type person. So we need to find a Sean Connery looking type person. And Sean Connery somehow just got the script. he said, okay, I'll do it. You know? so, <laughs> so I thought funny. that was fun. you know just a, a fun little note there that they originally that's what they wanted. They wanted that look and then but they never thought they could get him. but yeah. of course, you know all these movies we'll see we always get a little uh, cameo of somebody who's like, why are they in this movie? <laughs> right And sometimes it's because uh, you know they had kids and they wanted to do a family movie for their kids. Uh, you know, sometimes it's because they're broke you know, <laughs> <laughs> or got to pay off the IRS, but that's more of a, a recent thing. I don't think back in the day anybody worried about that as much, but uh, it was kind of interesting. Now, uh, of course, our main characters we got to talk about are our uh, our little person actors, because what would be a my father before me without a little person <laughs> in the movie? Yeah, certainly how it feels. <laughs> I definitely, uh, yeah, we got a trend going here, but you know, some of them, uh, the main. Gentleman David Rappaport was his uh, was the actor's name, and I can't I can't remember what his name was in the in the movie now. Uh, Randall, Randall, that's right. And he um, he thought that he was hired for his acting ability instead of his stature. So when he, but he thought everybody else was hired for their stature. So when <laughs> he was doing his lines and stuff, he was a little stuck up about it. And there's that one scene where they're all kind of yelling at Randall, you know, and stuff. And eventually they throw a skull through that glass or whatever. Uh, uh, Terry Gilliam has said, that's the cast actually being a little pissed. So <laughs> they're working <laughs> out funny. their frustrations on the character through that. So I thought that was fun. And then, of course, we get uh, Kenny Baker as Fidget. Um, we've seen him, in, of course, in as R2-D2. Uh, he was going to be Wicket, but then uh, he was sick. So that's when... Um, our other guy came in and did it from Willow. Uh, then, um, and then we just talked about him last week in uh labyrinth. According to some people, he's the little machine gun goblin, right? Which I don't know if that's true or not. But. <laughs> and then we get uh, Jack Purvis, which I think you did mention him last week.
0: Yeah. I think he um, played a goblin there as well. Yes.
1: He was, he was a goblin. Um, he actually uh, has a little uh, bit part in Brazil. Um, I noticed. I didn't realize that. But he uh, was a Jawa in A New Hope. He was an Ugnaught in Empire Strikes Back. And he was an Ewok in Return of the Jedi. So he's in all of them. That's <laughs> right. So he he has almost as many credits as Anthony Daniels. No, not quite. but <laughs> One of the best little people. Yes. He was all over the place. So he was definitely a, a hardworking little person actor at the time. But... Uh... <laughs> Oh, sorry. I don't know why I
0: laughed like that. <laughs> um, I think Malcolm Dixon was also in um, in Labyrinth as well. Okay, he's another one of the one of the uh, bandits we've got here. I think I remember seeing that name when we did the Labyrinth one. Oh yeah, here we go. He's in the Goblin Corps. I found
1: it. Well, and as we talked about, uh, you know, Labyrinth was uh, was it Terry Jones, who was another um, Monty Python alum right? So there is definitely some, uh, he, he was a writer, right? Now, now I'm forgetting. I think so. Now I, I, I know there was some Monty Python reference there cause we talked about it a lot unless we just made it up in our heads. But, <laughs> um, so, you know, there's definitely, again, that whole crew, that, that small crew of people that were working together all the time. So
0: yeah, he did the, uh, the screenplay Jerry, Terry Jones did.
1: Okay. Yep. Yeah, so, um, So yeah, it's interesting, and 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 yet another uh, labyrinth connection we'll say is if you look at the beginning of the film, when you are in the little boy, what is what's his name? Kevin. Kevin. When you're in Kevin's room, all around the room you see little things that are references to later. Right. You see, there's some little uh, cowboys, there's some Greek archers, there's a tank and a spaceship. And uh, these are all the things that at the end they bring in to fight the evil genius or the great evil or whatever his name is and that sort of thing. And you see those references throughout the movie. So, you know, um, there is um, in the evil genius's fortress, if you're looking close, some of the set design is actually there are giant blocks that are shaped like Legos. So that's where we're starting to get the idea of. You know, and and I think it's Terry Gilliam trying to play with our heads a little bit to say, is this a real world or was he dreaming? Right? Was this Kevin sleeping and smoke is coming because the house is on fire? So he's dreaming all of this. You know, dreams are quick. It, you know, time frame they always say dreams are super quick, but of course your brain processes the whole thing, right? Sure. So uh, there's a little bit of that there in Terry Gilliam. I think he's trying to give us that impression that there's definitely something there where it's a all in his head, or or that kind of thing. But then we get the ending where you know they're outside, fire. They're outside, safe from the fire. But the parents open up the uh, microwave, and there's a piece of the the evil genius or whatever. They touch and explode, right? And we get Agamemnon as a firefighter. So that's where I think you know it, it really comes down to. You know, how you want to interpret that ending, whether you feel like it's all in his head. But then I think Terry Gilliam is specifically saying that it's not by doing that. Like he's saying that I made you think that, but now it's not. Right. You know, so it was it's an interesting thing to look at it and stuff.
0: Yeah. And also, I think um, as far as the whole movie goes, I think for a while there, I agreed. I was like, okay, well, this is obviously a dream. But then when I think about it a little bit more, what 11-year-old is dreaming about having a conversation with God where he asks, why does there have to be evil? (laughs) And God goes, yeah, free will or something. Like what 11-year-old is really dreaming that? Up until then, I'm like, yeah, sure, a a magical adventure with these little people who who take you through time. That makes sense. But then as soon as uh, the supreme being shows up and he's like having a conversation with Kevin, I'm like...
1: (laughs) Well, you know, we don't know. This kid may be quite a philosophy major. (laughs) He's definitely... and And he goes out of his way, too, Terry Gilliam does, to show that he's a history buff, right? Yes. Because he's... He's trying to tell his parents about how he's reading uh, about Agamemnon and stuff. and then of course we get Agamemnon. So then there's another reference. Are we just see, is he just imagining that? Um, but Agamemnon is his ideal person in that way and because he's reading it in a book and he's following it around. And so, so he's definitely supposed to be a uh, you know a book smart kind of kid. And you can see why the first thing he does once he sees Agamemnon is he's like, I'll just stay here. I don't want to be with my parents anymore. You can, you know, I'll be your son. Right. And that kind of thing. So.
0: Yeah. And you could interpret it as though if, if this is a dream he's having, then it makes sense that he would be searching for that fa- father figure. Because obviously his parents are so distant and don't necessarily seem to care about him. Um, it would make sense that he reads this depiction of this great man. And then, you know, that night he's picturing him meeting that guy and, and that king then saying, yes, this is going to be my heir. I'm accepting you in. I'm going to be the father figure
1: that you don't have. Right. And, you know, I think that that, I don't know if we want to say it's some kind of subconscious thing, but it's also, you know, he, he sees his parents explode. And the next thing he sees is the fireman who is Agamemnon. You know, right. Sean Connery driving away, you know, giving him a wink, like you're going to be okay, kind of thing. I don't know. He does kind of just abandon him in the yard. I don't know. I, guess, <laughs> I mean, hopefully he comes back for him or something, but I don't yeah. know. He just kind of leaves him there and they drive off before his parents explode. But <laughs> yeah. I guess that's why we needed the big uh, uh, George Harrison song while we're panning out into space. But uh, yeah. It's definitely, like I say, this is one, another one of those that was kind of an odd one, you know, and it kind of skirted the line as to um, should I be watching it as a kid, you know, or or things of that nature, because it was kind of awkward. Of course, we get the uh, um, I remember I I vividly remember one of some of the scenes that really stick out in my head is the um, the giant under the boat, you know, and stabbing him in the head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For some reason, as a kid, I remember that sticking with me, where they they had to shoot that stuff into his head to put him to sleep and stuff. So yeah, that was that was ridiculous. <laughs> and that was again. So there, you can definitely see the whole point of that scene was it was um, envisioned from uh, Terry Gilliam said he saw, and I can't remember the artist's name, but he actually saw an artist who had a depiction of a giant with a boat as a head. And he thought, okay, I'll, I like that visualization. So I'm going to do that, you know, and stuff. And I think that you can, um, and, and I'm not aware of the reference or I didn't notice it, but I believe the um, the people that he steps on in that uh, little house are actually supposed to be a direct reference, I believe, to Life of Brian. I think it's um,
0: or am I thinking the other one. Oh, what's it called? the meaning of life
1: the meaning of life I think that's okay the one yeah is. so there there's definitely was some kind of reference there where he was trying to do a little callback and and, and that sort of thing cuz the direct characters or something i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah that um that was i get
0: i guess that that's another sort of um point to make about it being you know in his imagination is that isn't that area called like the time of legend or something cuz that's where they meet the uh, the ogre and obviously right. giants that walk around in the ocean aren't exactly historically accurate right. as far as we know. <laughs> well, we don't know.
1: Maybe they're hidden. But uh, yeah, but that's definitely where we're definitely moving out of reality. If you want to say that everything up to that was rea- reality, that's definitely moving away from it. And, you know, it's it specific- they specifically say at some point that um, uh, the the great evil or whatever is saying something about, uh, let's pull them into this, whatever, You're you're right, whatever this dimension was. We'll pull them in there. So I mean, at that point, you know that they it's some kind of magic pulling them into this fanciful world or something. But uh, yeah, I mean, at that point, you start getting the real uh, fancy visualizations too. I mean, that that maze was pretty cool, mm. and that's something I remember as a kid seeing the little guys running along the maze. Um, you know, but again, that was somewhat of a uh, they're they're wearing their fancy suits from the uh, Titanic, I believe, right? Uh, so they're looking pretty fancy and they're running after some kind of a, a, a enticement. I can't even remember what it was now. It's It's been a couple weeks, but, you know, they're chasing after something and Kevin's trying to tell him to stop, you know, but it does come down to, again, this is the traditional uh, children's show in that the child is the smartest one there. Right. Right. He's the one who knows everything. He's the one who has the right ideas. You see that a lot in those, um, those kids movies of the age where they're just making the kid be the, uh. The protagonist, the main person, the one who can do it right. And all parents are stupid and all adults are uh, mean and ignore you, right? Right. And that kind of thing. So you definitely see where that's a. There's an inkling of that there. But I thought that that was fun. Um, you know, the, the idea of them swinging on the ropes. And then what that's, is that where we lose Fidget? I think so. I think. Or we'll... no,
0: he, Fidget gets crushed later during the, nah, the battle with the evil right. genius. That's right.
1: I thought we lost something there, but was I wrong on that? Now I can't remember. Shoot. I guess I got to go back and rewatch. it. <laughs> Man, yeah, I don't remember either. For some reason, I was thinking we lost somebody there, but maybe because I do know that we lost Fidget, but of course he comes back. Uh, he gets saved by the uh, the all-knowing one.
0: Yes, the Supreme Being. <laughs> the
1: Supreme Being. That's what they called him. Yeah. So,
0: um, I thought that, uh, t- speaking of the Supreme Being and the Evil Genius... Uh, first to, to hit further on the point of this commentary on consumerism, I, I thought it was interesting, and I didn't realize this until I watched it the second time. Uh, I think maybe last week, but the second time I watched it, I realized that, uh, everything in the evil genius's lab or whatever, his fortress is all super high tech stuff, right? He's mm-hmm. using lasers and even, he's even talking about how, um, He's, he's, I don't remember what the exact quote is, but he's making fun of God for making like 52 different types of parrots and he's right. talking about slugs. He's like, they don't have hands, they don't have mouths, they can't work, you know? <laughs> and I think it, it sort of further hits that point of like this ultimate level of consumerism is the e- quote unquote evil of our society.
1: Right, right. And I think, so I'm curious, let's see, they stole the map from the uh, supreme being, right? Right. Okay. So I was, I was wondering about that, but yeah, it is definitely. Where um, when you get down to it, all the things that corrupt people, yeah, of course, are evil. And and that was, uh, you know, uh, the supreme being's test, right? I'm just throwing this out there to see what happens kind of thing. Yeah, I think that there you see, Terry Gilliam is saying that we're all just a big lab experiment or something uh, from that standpoint.
0: Yeah, which is weird because obviously, you know, um, I, I mentioned earlier, Kevin asks the supreme being, why does there have to be evil? And he offhandedly goes, I don't know, free will or something. Right. But then obviously either right before that or immediately after that, he's like, oh, well, I planned everything that happened here, which sort of takes away from that free will aspect. So that leads me to believe, or it doesn't lead me to believe anything, but it makes me question, like it would be i would be interested to know what terry gilliams actually view well what terry gilliams actual views are on the issue of of free will
1: yeah yeah and there i i think that uh, i know there's a couple books out that he's written um autobiographies and stuff that i think would be pretty interesting i know there's a book i think there's books specifically out there about time bandits in brazil and stuff you know because they were kind of a cultural thing you know and stuff uh not only the movie itself, but just the making of it, the process, and all, all of that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's a it's definitely a commentary. And you see that a lot. Um, I felt like the commentary might have been a little heavy-handed, especially with the parents. Um, but again, this is a kid's point of view where all parents are stupid. So maybe right. that's what he's doing there as well. But
0: Yeah, y- that's a good point, is that you would assume... <laughs> being, you know, a regular person that his parents are at least showing him some level of affection. Um, but obviously then, you're right, from the kid's point of view, it would obviously be exaggerated, right? right? Because with everything, with kids, everything is always to an extreme.
1: Well, and he didn't, you know, he, he's trying to do the thing from Kevin's point of view, I believe, because he did, there is mention specifically that all of the camera shots are shot from low, because that's the point of view that our main character and his friends would have, being you know, looking up at things and that sort of thing. So he's trying to give us that he's trying to immerse us in that, uh, view of the world too. you know, the literal view of the world, let alone all the other stuff that goes along with it. So I don't know. It's definitely, there's a lot more to it. I'm sure. Um, as a child, I didn't get any of that, but I did watch (laughs) it quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and again, maybe the reason I watched it quite a bit is because I had few options at the time. (laughs) Sure. But, uh, it was always an interesting one, and of course, I don't know. I, I guess I did have a fascination with the little people at the time, based off of all my movie selections. I got, I I promise I've got some on the list with full size people. So, <laughs> yeah. well, you were a child; it makes sense you'd want you'd be attached to the people who are the same height as you. I guess so. I, I know that uh, Terry Gilliam mentioned the the reason he got the idea for this is because whenever the circus would come around. Uh, you'd see the, the kids that go in there and work for the circus just to help set up and, and do the odd stuff like cleaning and things like that. So right. that gave him the idea of doing a, a movie from their point of view, but he didn't want it only to be children because he felt that as adults, we would need some kind of an adult perspective. So that's why he went with the idea of little people actors because they're adults that are child sized, right? right? So so again, you get that point of view that we don't normally get, but you still get kind of an adult perspective on it. If you could call their behavior adult. <laughs> I mean, you got yeah. one of them who eats everything randomly. So I don't know. That's, I don't know if that's really uh
0: well, I suppose you could look at it as though like these, uh, little people are all exaggerations of the different, like aspects of people. Like Randall is obviously an egomaniac, Right. <laughs> but David Rappaport and Randall are both egomaniacs evidently. And, um, there's the one guy who is yeah, he just eats. <laughs> so, I suppose it could be that those are supposed to sort of be exaggerations to further prove the fact that the one who is the only character in this movie who is well-rounded and uh reasonable is the child and not the adults.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good movie. It, I, I mean, like I say, it w- it was the movie. It was, it was one of those movies. How about that? It was one of those <laughs> movies, and that's why I'm making you watch it now, because it was one of those movies. Um, obviously, it wasn't a uh, huge hit, considering we didn't get sequels, although they did have sequels planned. In fact, I think as late as the early 90s, they were planning... I, I don't know the year specifically, but they were planning on it. They had something written. It got shelled for a few years, and then I think both uh, David Rappaport and uh, uh, the Purvis gentleman... Uh, passed in between that time. So they never got it off the ground and they shelved it. Right. Um, I do know at some point, I think they mentioned that there is an actual time bandits comic book that kind of adds to the story a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious about that. Uh, I don't know where you find all those one-off comic. I mean, there's <laughs> comics about everything. Sure. Uh, I don't know where you could find it. You'd probably have to dig for one of them one-off ones. It's probably in a quarter bin somewhere, but uh- <laughs> yeah,
0: Almost, yeah. I'm sure it's a, a super high quality comic book,
1: <laughs> but there is talk, I believe, of a sequel. And I think uh, um, I don't. I didn't make a note of it, but I think there is talks of a sequel. And I want to say, maybe I'm thinking of something else, but I want to say that Taika Waititi might be involved in a sequel. I, I think.
0: I think I do remember that. I think you're right,
1: or not a sequel, or not necessarily a sequel, or maybe a reboot or a series. I think is what I had heard. So I am kind of curious about that too. Of course, Taika Waititi might be stretching himself a little thin, but
0: uh, isn't he supposed to be doing like a Star Wars movie too?
1: That's what I've heard too. So I mean, if he's doing everything, then eventually he'll do nothing, I suppose. But yeah, we'll see, <laughs> yeah,
0: or he'll continue to do everything, and the quality's just going to be horrendous, <laughs> yeah. like Thor: Love and Thunder.
1: I wouldn't call that horrendous. <laughs> it's a horrendous. No, as yeah, a stretch. it's, it's I just don't know. it's just
0: bad, not horrendous. Still better than the first two Thor movies.
1: Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, this was another one that, uh, um, I watched, I burned through, I, uh, repeatedly watched and I'm glad uh, you got to see it. And I do think that it might be fun, uh, to take our format slightly different here and look at Brazil and Munchausen, um, just from the standpoint of it being fresh to both of us. So.
0: Yeah, that'd be, that would be super interesting. Um, and Brazil is pretty highly rated. It's got a 7.9. So. Well,
1: I mean, maybe we should save this for the Brazil talk. But, you know, while I was watching it, I was somewhat distracted and looking at IMDb <laughs> trivia because I wasn't... Okay, I'll save that. But <laughs> you were particularly interested. <laughs> I will say that, uh, you know, there's a bunch of notes in there that there was a uh, the director's cut or the director's version of it, and the studio was going to mess around with it. And somehow he released it to... Uh, Terry Gilliam released it to some uh, movie critics or something or, or movie writers, uh, you know, like newspaper people. And uh, they saw the cut before the studio went in and d- and said they're going to do their cut. And they had already proclaimed it like the best movie of the year or something like that. Oh, interesting. Before the studio had a chance. So then the studio had to release the Terry Gilliam cut instead of doing what they did. And you'll see it. There's an ending that is uh, somewhat controversial, but it is the... Um, it's not the ending the studio wanted but because terry gilliam got it out there enough that people looked at it and said it was great the studio stuck with it so that's that's kind of an interesting thing well i might dig into that a little bit more before we talk about it for sure but i i believe that's what i saw on some of the trivia is that there was some finagling there and terry gilliam uh from brazil was pretty uh He's pretty, pretty much a pretty big antagonist with the studio system. I think over that movie. I think there was a lot going on there that he had to get around or something. I don't know. It, it, there was a lot of talk about it, so I do want to dig into that a little bit more before we talk about it. But. Yeah, that would be interesting. I'd be, I'd like to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I knew you uh, uh you know you had your uh 1984 reference cuz I think you've read that one, haven't you? Yeah, I actually just yeah. started
0: rereading it.
1: Okay. Yeah, so there's so you've got that reference too and like I said it was his it was his take on it. Some people say it's a satire. I would say it's just more his uh opinion of, uh, or his way of doing a 1984 story. So
0: Yeah, and I mean if if uh like you said it's about a corporation, right?
1: Yeah, I mean it's that kind of thing where it, everything's corporate and you know there there's paperwork for everything, you know that kind of thing. It's not necessarily commercialism; it's more of a, everything's a corporate environment where it's okay, submit a form and do it, you know, and, and the whole world is run that way. That kind of thing. So, right. Interesting. So it's definitely a commentary on that, not necessarily commercialism though, as much as. Although I guess there's some in there too. Yeah, maybe there's a little bit of that too. Well, I don't know. I'll be interested in getting your take sometimes.
0: Mm, Commercialism, but with the added more. Well, if this is commercialism from like the standpoint of or the viewpoint of the consumer itself, then maybe Brazil is commercialism from the standpoint of just the corporation.
1: In a way, yeah. I mean, it's definitely uh, because he's a corporate man, you know, and stuff. Which I think it's one of those things. You know, it's 1984. Everyone was, you know, or something like that. You either were or you were a, a worker, right? So. I don't know it's it's an interesting show. I'll, I'll be curious to see what you think about it. So. Yeah. But um any final thoughts for Time Bandits? I don't think so. I'd still recommend everybody go see it even though it's definitely a different movie than what you see nowadays, but yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah I think it's it's probably worth the what hour forty five? Yeah, hour fifty. Hour
1: it's it's worth the watch. It's worth the watch just to see, uh, well, to to see what I had. No, <laughs> <laughs> but it and like I say, it's worth the watch because it is a cult classic. And a lot of times, it's fun to watch those cult classics to see why it is. You know what what really draws people to this movie now? I mean, I know um, some of the podcasts I listen to um, that uh, Scott Johnson. I tell you about uh, the morning stream and stuff. Good podcast. I recommend it he mentions that time bandits is one of his favorite movies, but it's just that dystopian, that, that odd future kind of thing that, that is really interesting to him. So, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a a movie I would recommend. How about you? You you gave it an okay, I think, right?
0: I think so. I think I give it okay. okay. Um, what were the other ones? Trash, Let's okay, see, we or okay? Work.
1: Could be better. Could be better. Yeah,
0: I think it's better. This is better, a little higher than could be better. Okay, <laughs> but I don't know if it's really like okay, like considering I thought Labyrinth was okay.
1: Well, we'll find out when they when Taika Watiti does a series if it could be better or not. How about
0: that? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, Well, with that, we will uh, catch you in two weeks' time.